Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're just going to be talking about miscellaneous things. A few things that I've been thinking about for a while that probably wouldn't by themselves make a full 30-minute episode that I could just kind of throw together. Maybe just like a rant, right? So once in a while, you need a good rant to get things out, things you're thinking about. So this is that episode. Over the last few weeks, I've had various conversations with Calvinists and Arminians and stuff like that. And and one thing they don't understand, uh, well, there's a lot of things they don't understand. But one thing that gets to me is their just their basic misunderstanding of how ancient studies work, especially ancient languages. Ancient languages. One Calvinist was saying to me, I posted Jackie's more. I think I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, Jackie's more. He is a guy out of England, and he's done a lot of work on the word elect in the Bible, electos. And he goes through every instance of it, and he covers the context, and he goes back to the LXX, the Greek version of the Old Testament, written before the time of Christ, and sees how that word is used throughout the context. And then he wrote a book about this. And the book is called Deleting Elect from the Bible, and you can find it on Amazon, and it's for like a dollar on Amazon. So it'll cost you almost nothing. The formatting of the book isn't very good, so it doesn't work very nicely with your Kindle, but you'll have access to all the information. He also has that YouTube video that I mentioned that uh, goes over basically the same premise. That elect is not quite the right word when we are thinking about elect in the Bible. Instead, it would be more something like choice, like you have the choice grapes, which are the finest grapes. It's not someone being elected, it's something being chosen based on its good quality. Let's go back to Jesus's parable where, of election, basically, where he invites everyone. Uh, they refuse, so he sends out servants and he grabs a new class of people. And those new class of people come to his banquet, but some of them aren't prepared. They're not dressed in their wedding garments. These aren't the choice people. These are kind of people who came, but they weren't prepared. They weren't qualified to be part of the kingdom of God in this scenario. So that's Jackie S'mores, his premise. And I posted this to this Calvinist. And this Calvinist says, who else agrees with this guy? Okay, that's uh, appeal to authority. And that kind of misunderstands how ancient dictionaries work. I mean, in the time of Jesus, there's no like American standard English dictionary where you flip open and you could see at the time what the culture defined each and every word as. Words in modern Greek dictionaries how these things are defined, how they're translated, how we get our Greek dictionaries today is these experts go back to the ancient context of these words. And they, they look at the surrounding context and they figure out the best translations of these words. They figure out variants of these words. It's not a definitive study. And so when someone like Jackie Smore goes back to every single ancient context, use of this word throughout the Bible and throughout the Septuagint, the LXX, that is serious scholarship that needs to be considered when defining how this word is used and what it means. And just dismissing this based on the fact that some Greek dictionary somewhere, uh, someone doesn't translate it in that way, that, that's not a valid way to refute Jackie Smore's work. Modern dictionaries of ancient language are primarily guesswork based on existing surviving documents we have from the past. And sometimes, Scholars, translators, they get it wrong. And Joel Hoffman makes a pretty good case that covet within the Old Testament, thou shall not covet, was like a defrauding. It's not a thought crime. That's an actual action where your neighbor goes off and then you covet his wife. You're defrauding his wife. You're using tricky means to capture her. 
And when you see Jesus in the New Testament quoting the Old Testament laws, it, he translates it in this way in Greek. It's not a thought crime, it's an action. So scholars can get it wrong. Scholars have got it wrong. This Calvinist was convinced that uh, his sources, which he wouldn't name, of course they never name their sources. They just say Greek scholars. And what they usually mean by that are the James Whites of the world, people who are very laughable to be called scholars, people who don't dabble in like the Near East text. They don't deal with the context of the statements. And instead, they're called scholars because they have this uh, following of Calvinists and, and they have this systematic theology that they throw together. They're not actual biblical scholars. They might be scholars of systematic theology, but it's not Greek. Even if they know Greek and know how it's used, and James White, I think he knows ancient languages, but he doesn't just understand the fundamental concepts of language how pliable language is, how much dualistic meanings can be ascribed to single phrases, single words. And instead, when he goes into the, these texts, especially like John 3.16, and he tries to take these wooden meanings that are not contextual, the context needs to define what's going on in the phrase. And in the context of Jesus explaining to Nicodemus how Nicodemus can be saved, Jesus is not preaching fatalism, that uh, everyone's chosen from before the foundation of the world and no one can do anything about it. That's a ridiculous scene that he's setting up in this mind where someone's coming to Jesus to figure out how one can be saved. Hey Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Well, you needed to be one of the pre-chosen elect and regenerated by this special means, and there's nothing you could actually do that decides whether or not you can be saved. And what is that? That's not, that's not what's going on in the text. That's why, why do they think, why do they think that's the context? They're just trying to force their theology on these weird, vague phrases that they want to mean something opposite of what the context says. What's going on in the context? What's the story describing? And here's the thing about these Calvinists, these Calvinists like I was talking to, they don't understand, they don't listen to, they've never been exposed to other ideas. Like N.T. Wright has an entire series where he goes over Romans in detail. He's, he's done... Uh, years of study on Romans. He's he's understands the Greek. He has his own translation of the New Testament, and they are just absolutely ignorant of what N.T. Wright writes about Romans. Its purpose, its use. Why why is that? They're so insulated. They don't understand competing beliefs. And you know you might engage them and try to explain it to them. They're not able to repeat to you what their critics say about the text because they're just wholly ignorant of the other side. It's like they live in their little worlds, their little bubbles, and it's almost like a cult mentality. And if you get too deep in it, if you're engaging them too much, they just say, you're unregenerated, you don't understand the text, and only us, us cultists, we understand the text because we are regenerated. There's no falsifiability in Calvinism when you engage with these Calvinists. They're all right, always right, no matter what, because they're the regenerate. So the text must mean what they say it means, despite what biblical scholarship says, despite what uh, Bart Ehrman says, despite what N.T. Rice says, despite what Peter N. says, despite what biblical scholarship says, the Calvinist is always right, because they're the regenerated ones, and they got this secret hidden knowledge that they just need to reject any just even normal reading comprehension. You know, I've had it before where I say, okay, let's bring this text to them all, We'll grab 10 random individuals, and we'll ask them what the text means. That, that's a good way to gauge what common reading comprehension would take a text. 
right? You just grab a random sample of people and you see what the most likely reading is. That doesn't mean that those 10 people are right, but it does give you some hints to what's a reasonable reading of the text and what's not a reasonable reading of the text. And Calvinists, they hate this method. They hate crowdsourcing, they hate scholarship, and they want to focus on their individual bubbles. They're, they're like social justice warriors in a way, where they just want to be in their insulated community. They don't want outside opinions. They want to shut down speech. That's another thing, like the Bruce Wares of the world. They want to kick open theists out of uh, ETS, Evangelical Theological Society. They don't want to debate with us because they say, oh, and then we're legitimatizing that belief, even though open theist beliefs match a lot of secular scholarship. It's a scholarly view. It is the scholarly view. And instead of debating, instead of uh, discussing ideas, they would want to shut down conversation, and they want to shut the conversation down with ad hominem attacks. Oh, you're a heretic. I don't want to engage with you. Oh, I'm casting pearl before swine because I'm a special elect and we have the special knowledge and we don't want to legitimatize your straightforward reading of the texts of the Bible. So next I'm going to talk about how I handle these people. I handle things a little bit differently than other people. There's the people like the Michael Sayas of the world and they're very nice people. Like this one time I saw a snarky comment by Michael Saya. I had to call my wife over and say, look at this, look at this. He's being snarky. I've never seen this in my life. This is a guy who would rather disengage often than uh, escalate a conversation. And so it's, it's a very passive, um, meek approach. You know, Leighton Flowers is like this as well. Leighton Flowers will engage these Calvinists and he'll put out these thoughtful videos that are rational and well-sourced and he'll go over his critics, he'll quote his critics, he'll, he'll talk about things and source it, and he'll be very nice about it. Very nice. And he'll go to these Calvinist webpages like Bible Thumping Wingnuts, and these people will just badger him. They'll call him filth, they'll call him a liar, they'll call him a snake and feminist and uh, a heretic, and they'll just heap and heap the insults on Leighton Flowers, even though Leighton Flowers is being nice, respectful, and thoughtful. That's what we're dealing with here. That is what we're dealing with here. And so am I that guy? Am I the Leighton Flowers of the world? Am I the Michael Sayas of the world? I'm not. I'm not going to sit there and take that. And I will push back. And some people don't like this, but, you know, to each their own. Uh, we need the Michael Sayas, the Leighton Flowers of the world, and we need people to push back. When we look around the world and we look at authoritarian governments like communist Russia, totalitarian North Korea, the first thing that always gets banned is jokes, is humor, is ridicule. Those people who think highly of themselves, they cannot stand being laughed at. These are the James Whites of the world. These are the Matt Slicks of the world. They can't take ridicule. They can't take people making light of them because they're full of themselves. They think that of themselves as these great masters of all knowledge. And so what really gets to people like this is jokes, belittlement, humor, laughing, calling them out on being ignorant of basic things like reading comprehension. So if you think of yourself as like a really smart guy and, and you're the king of all philosophy and someone is out there on the internet talking to you and refocusing you to the text and saying that you have no reading comprehension, that's going to be a deep personal insult. 
So I'll do that. I'll do that because you can't just let them sit there on their high horse. Jesus didn't do that either. The religious leaders would come to Jesus and they'd be all full of themselves. And Jesus would tear them down a eye. He'd pull them off their high horse. He'd call them hypocrites and vipers and whited uh, sepulchres, whited graves that are they're false teachers. And he'd pull them down with insults because the insult is the fastest way to get through their high horse, their self-righteousness, their high opinions of themselves, you're tearing that down, this, this shell that they built around them, this bubble where they're, they're the greatest thing in this bubble ever. Real quick, back to Jesus. Jesus understood people. He understood to treat people based on where they're coming to you from. So when people approach Jesus with honest questions and wanting honest answers and honest dialogue, he treated them very nicely, uh, very respectfully, and he dealt with them like human beings. But when these uh, people would come and try to trap them, the religious leaders would approach Jesus, he would tear them down while he's answering them. So his answers would have specific points, verifiable points, and it'd be coupled with these deprecating type of statements that would, that would delegitimatize them to their audience. And you always have to think about your audience. And this is one thing I learned in high school. Like when you're in a debate and people are watching this debate, Usually the person who wins is the one who's more funny or the one who's more confident. And they don't quite care about arguments as much as they do about perceptions. Even in the presidential debates when radio and TV were a fairly new thing and uh, you had the same debate between Nixon and JFK and one person heard it on the radio and one person saw it on TV, the people who saw it on TV thought that JFK won just because of his mannerisms, his confidence, the way Nixon was sweaty and it really showed off. The makeup didn't really work for him. So they thought that JFK won that debate. And the people who were listening to the radio version, they thought that Nixon won that debate based on arguments. They, they weren't uh, biased by that visual appearance. So know your audience. What are you trying to do? Are you trying to reach the person you're debating with or are you trying to reach an audience? That's another thing as well. Usually when I debate these types of people, the, de the debate's really not about convincing the person you're debating with. It's about convincing the audience, showing the audience why this person shouldn't be trusted, why this person's arguments are flawed, why this person is, has, doesn't have a legitimate point. These people who will often engage in debates, their minds are usually made up. They don't have a list of things that they've changed their mind on throughout their entire past, their history. They haven't shown that they're open to changing their opinions based on evidence. And usually the people who are most militant in their beliefs, they're not going to change their mind. Nothing's going to change their mind. So the debate at that point is really not about them. The debate is about the audience. And when the debate's about the audience, then your tactics change. The way you phrase things changes. Just the way you come off changes. You have to be very specific in your criticisms and delegitimize their high opinion of themselves. They'll go ballistic. They'll go ballistic because you're going to be pointing out some very simple things that they are just rejecting and they won't be able to handle it. They won't be able to answer questions. You keep, keep the questions coming. Remember that one key to intellectual integrity is being able to answer questions. And the people who refuse to answer straightforward questions those are the people who don't have legitimate beliefs. They're the ones who can't explain and defend their beliefs. And one interviewer in mainstream news is Tucker Carlson, and he's on Fox, and he interviews people on politics. And this is a strategy he'll use. 
He'll get a guest on his show who he disagrees with politically, and he'll ask them a simple question, and then they'll avoid the question. They'll try to derail it to something else, and they're hoping that he just drops the question. He can't do that. He can't do that. When we're open theists and we're asking questions to Calvinists, we can't just drop the question when they give us this half answer that doesn't actually answer the question. Re-ask the question and keep re-asking it. And that's what he does in these interviews. He just keeps asking the same question. And it's pretty obvious to anyone watching these interviews that that person is deathly afraid of the question. They're afraid of a question. They have illegitimate beliefs. They're, they're not a rational person. And it's obvious how afraid of basic, simple questions these people are. And they come off looking like fools. Questions are very, very effective in making points making points that people cannot answer. And it can't be like a Matt Slick question where the question is 70 parts long and you have to map all these together. That doesn't prove anything because every single question that's asked is, is loaded with assumptions and, and half thoughts. It has to be something specific and factual and key, something that's obvious to the audience, what the answer is, like, like reading comprehension. There's this guy who's really big into philosophy, and he said that uh, God is incomprehensible, and I can't have a discussion with him because I just don't understand God's incomprehensibility. And what's his proof text? What's his proof text? It's Philippians 4.7. Let me start at Philippians 4.6 so you guys could understand this proof text. Be anxious for nothing, this is Paul writing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? He thinks that that verse is about God's incomprehensibility. Not only that, but it's an incomprehensibility that he understands, although he claims he doesn't understand it, but I definitely don't understand it. It's this un non-understanding that he understands, but not me, right? I said, look at what the sentence. What's the sentence saying? What, is, what does that modify? Which surpasses all understanding? What does that modify? Does that modify peace? Is it the peace which surpasses all understanding, the peace of God? Or is it God which surpasses all understanding? Just read it. And then I quoted, I quoted parallel texts in other literature. You know, Joseph Conrad, he wrote Heart of Darkness. It's a good book. And often it talks about incomprehensible things. Like there's a ship off the coast of Africa and it's just firing into Africa and it's incomprehensible. What does that mean? What does that mean? It is, is, it, is Joseph Conrad talking about this uh, metaphysics where nothing could be understood in any sense? When he talks about incomprehensible dread, what kind of dread is that? Is that does that mean we can't understand that dread at all? At, or does that just mean deep dread? And then I quoted Luke. And what does Luke say? He says, it seems good to me also, this is Luke 1.3, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first. Imagine if that phrase was attributed to God. They'd say, oh, God has perfect, uh, unadulterated knowledge of all things from the very beginning. But this is attributed to Luke in this verse. And he says he has a perfect understanding of all things. Okay, so now we got a perfect understanding of all things on one hand, ascribed to a person, and the incomprehensible peace of God on the other. Well, you know, how do we take these phrases? How do we understand and translate uh, these hyperbolic statements? Are we being consistent when we translate one and the other? And for, yeah, back, back to the text. It's basically like, read the text, dude. Tell me what the text means. What's incomprehensible? Is God incomprehensible or is the peace 
because those are two different things. They're two different things. And you're trying to argue to me in a very militant way. He just copied and pasted like all versions that he could find of that single verse in this very arrogant manner. And so it's great to make fun of them. It's like, read your verse. Can you read your verse? Literally look at the verse that you're quoting to me and tell me what you think it means. And when they are that militant and that arrogant and they're called out on such a deep matter that's obvious to people with normal reading comprehension skills, they go ballistic. They lose their mind. They lose their mind because they think they're all scholarly and smart and, and he has this higher understanding of God and incomprehensibility and stuff like that. And then here I am on the other spectrum saying you cannot read basic sentences, basic English. You're, you don't understand language. You, you can't read. You're illiterate. Illiterate. You cannot read the words that you're quoting to me. Your own proof texts you don't understand. And what's more effective to the audience? You take the John Sanders debate with James White, and John Sanders is nice, and he's respectful, and he's thoughtful, and he says, well, we don't know for certain, but there's these things that we're working out. And then on the other hand, you got James White, who's militant and arrogant and confident. And who does the audience think wins these debates? It's always that confident person, that confident person. So when you pull that confidence down, you show that it's a sham, that it's just fake, then you're the one that's winning the debates. And especially when your points are on point, your points are accurate, your points are obvious, and your points undermine their arrogance. And think about the long-term strategy here. In the long-term, you are pulling down their confidence and going into these debates in the future because they know what they're up against. You think James White's gonna come back to Bob Enyard anytime soon and ask for a rematch on debating open theism? No, because he exited that debate with a bloody nose. Bob Enyart could have done better in a few things. Uh, that, that is true. But Bob Enyart really hammered him on James White's idea of the incarnation on the Trinity. And James White was extremely triggered after that debate. He posted a whole bunch of stuff, and uh, there was a huge, big back-and-forth scandal. I went on the James White's uh, his dividing line, his uh, Facebook page, and I was kicked off. I was banned from a conversation because I kept asking the same question over and over, a question that the Calvinist refused to answer. And the question was this, was the human part of Jesus divine? Oh, you don't understand the hypostatic union. Okay, I don't care if I understand the hypostatic union or not. It's a question. Can you answer the question? Was the human part of Jesus divine? Oh, you just don't understand what you, no, I'm not, I'm, it's a question. It's a question. There's nothing in the question that says what I believe. I could be an atheist for all the question cares. Just answer the question. I kept asking the same question over and over, and they'd like post links. They didn't want to address my question because my question undermines their belief. Of course, of course they believe no. They do not believe that the human part of Jesus was divine. It doesn't work with their theology, their Platonism, where there's those various hypostases and the material world cannot be divine. There's a separation, a gulf, and so in no way can the changeable, mutable part of Jesus also be divine. It doesn't work in their theology, and they don't want to admit it. They want a half and half Jesus who's half divine and half material and then say he's fully God for the half that is God and fully man for the half that is man. It's a sham belief. Uh, they don't want to answer questions about it. And guess what? I understand it better than they do. I do, because I, I understand Platonism. I read Platonism. I understand their thought process. 
So I, I think maybe I'm a little bit more qualified than them to understand that. And poor Leighton Flowers, he always gets that accusation thrown at him. You just don't understand Calvinism. He's like, I quote Calvinists. I'm sitting here quoting Calvin, John Calvin. I'm quoting, I'm quoting mainstream Calvinists, and you still say that I don't understand Calvinism. There's nothing that a non-Calvinist could say to a Calvinist that a Calvinist wouldn't say, oh, you just don't understand Calvinism. That's not an argument. That's not an argument. And that's how they just try to silence discussion. They try to silence debate. They just pretend that everyone doesn't understand. Where in reality, a lot of times these people debating the Calvinists, they understand Calvinism better than the Calvinists. They're the ones out there reading Calvin. They're the ones out there reading mainstream Calvinist theologians. They're the ones quoting them in context. And it's just, it's just impossible to get through to some of these people. You post them a link and say, okay, here's what Calvinism teaches about immutability. And here's a mainstream Calvinist who wrote a book on the subject. And here's him in discussion with other people about what it means and what the implications are. And just just listen to this. Listen to this. I'm trying to get them to uh, branch out and learn something that never goes over in debates. Even that Calvinist I talked about earlier, who I posted Jackie Smores, his video deleting elect from the Bible. He didn't listen to Jackie Smore. He doesn't care what Jackie Smore says about it. He doesn't care about the evidence. He's not going to take his time to challenge his own world view. So many signs of intellectual dishonesty going on there. And I bet, and, and I'm a betting man, put your money where your mouth is, and I bet someone like Matt Slick could not repeat what Arthur Hagelin's argument to him Remember Arthur Hagelin debated Matt Slick on John 6? The entire chapter, and he tried to keep him in context of the chapter and discuss what's going on in that specific chapter without jumping around all these different proof texting and looking at the context. And what was Arthur Hagelin's argument about John 6.39? This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given to me I should lose none, but should raise it up at the last day. Does anyone honestly believe that Matt Slick would be able to recall Arthur Hagelin's argument about that verse without having to go back to his previous debate and look it up? Did he internalize it? Does he understand it? What is the argument? Can he recall? Can he represent Arthur Hagelin's argument? I don't think he can. I don't think he cared about the argument. He's got his own theology. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. It doesn't matter how good someone explains to you the context shows you parallel texts with similar phrases that don't mean what you want that text to mean not when you're matt slick and matt slick he's a special kind of intellectually dishonest he won't engage with anyone who doesn't treat him like he's like the king of the world and an intellectual superior just look at any debate he has look at the arthur Hagelin debate where he wanted arthur Hagelin to lick his boots before they even started the conversation he wouldn't even engage with him with when arthur Hagelin's just making straightforward statements and it's like oh you're not treating me with respect and then matt slick will always devolve the conversation into oh you should treat me nicely here are some bible verses that say you need to treat me nicely while he treats other people like scum look at how he treated jesse morell jesse morell in his debate with matt slick treated it respectfully he treated him honestly and matt slick's just over there making these faces and he tries to do it with Jesse Morrell, too. He's like, oh, woe is me. You need to treat me nicer. Oh, I'm such a fragile snowflake. And he just did that on one of the Jesse Morrell's uh, sites 
where it's about Bible debate and discussion, and he comes there and he says, I hear people are using my daughter's atheism against me, how she left me and Calvinism because of the way I mistreated her. Oh, woe is me. You can't blame me for my kids. Well, guess what? Guess what, Maslick? The Bible says you judge a teacher by how their kids turn out. I understand there might be exceptions, but coming onto a debate page with this woe is me story to gem up sympathy for yourself, grow up. Put on some pants. Become a man. And another way you understand that Matt Slick is this, this scummy, scummy person is he doesn't engage people in forums in which he doesn't have the power. He wants you to come onto his Google Hangouts where he can mute you at will, where he doesn't have to address your questions directly. He wants to be in a situation where he controls the venue. He controls who says what and when they say it. He does. He won't engage people on an equal level, and that's part of his arrogance. You need to treat him like he's some sort of demigod with all this knowledge, and he's this great teacher, and uh, you can't be straightforward to him, and you have to treat him nicely or he'll storm off stage. He will storm off stage. The best comment that I've seen about Matt Slick's mentality is, uh, is on one of the Matt Slick's threads, and this guy says, Eric Barnes' book, Games People Play, he describes Matt. He does his alcoholic game, and the goal is enabling pity to retain control. He stays sick if his game is successful. He wins when he finds someone who is a rescuer. Rescuers are enabled by rescuing others by granting pity. The relationship is mutually parasitic while having a payoff. And that's the Matt Slick mentality. So all these people run to his defense. Oh, we can't be mean to Matt Slick. It's like, Matt Slick is mean to other people. I don't care. I don't care. Oh, Chris, you are so mean. Oh, I don't care. I don't care. Look at these Bible verses that say you need to be nicer. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not a nice guy. So grow up, put on your pants, and deal with my arguments. Are my arguments true or false? I don't care about your emotions. I don't care about how I present myself. All that doesn't matter. Is what I'm saying true? And all your little proof texting to try to shame me into being nicer to people while rejecting the context and not understanding Jesus's ministry and how Jesus taught people, that stuff doesn't affect me. I don't care about your opinion of me, random internet person. If someone wants to come to me and have an honest conversation with a give and take where you just sit down and have a conversation, I'm all for that. I'm not for these little rants where people want to talk for five minutes without even addressing your arguments and addressing your points and not even understanding your points. Not interested in that. And when people come at me in a militant manner, I'll shut them down. Real quick story before we go. I was talking to my boys and I'm like, boys, you can't be so nice all the time. Girls don't like nice guys. Uh, you're not going to get a wife like that. And they said, well, how did you get mommy then? And I was like, boys, let me let you in on a secret. I'm not a nice guy. <laughs> my wife doesn't like that story, but I think it's hilarious. But anyways... On that Matt Slick thread that we talked about, he ran away. He said, oh, you guys are so mean to me. I'm going away. So we're going to play us out with the Matt Slick theme song. Thank you for listening. Everyone likes me and thinks I'm great in my safe space. My safe space. People don't judge me and haters don't hate in my safe space. Your safe space. People that support me mixed in with Say nice things, rainbows all around me, there is no shame in